Father God, um, we need to hear from you. Lord, I, I need to hear from you. And so I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us now this morning through your word, and that you would, you would use your word, Father, to one, convict us, Lord, where there is unconfessed sin in our lives, that you would, you would convict us of that sin, and that as we turn to you in forgiveness, Father, that you would continue your sanctifying work in the lives of those whom you've saved. God, that we would, Jesus, love you more and more. Father, I pray that if there are those among us who are um, non-believers who are lost, Lord, I pray that you would use the proclamation of your word this morning, that your gospel, that you would use it to convict them of their sins, that they would turn in repentance and faith to you, Jesus, and that you would do only what you can do, and that is to save. God, we need to hear from you, for we need encouragement. And Lord, I pray that as you speak to us today, that you would encourage us. You would encourage us in our faith, encourage us in our lives, that we would seek to live in such ways that would honor you and glorify you with everything we are, with everything we, we do. Lord, we need instruction. And so I pray that as you speak to us today through your word, that you would instruct us. You would, you would teach us. You would teach us about you. You would teach us about us. You would teach us how we are to live in light of the reality that you are God of all creation. Jesus, I ask these things this morning, not for simply our sake, for our good, but we ask these things for, for your sake, that you would be magnified that as your glorious gospel of grace is proclaimed, that you would be glorified above all else. So I do, Lord Jesus, ask these things now this morning in your name, but ultimately for your name's sake. Amen. Well, I am convinced that the best way to guard against theological error, to guard against false teaching and false teachers... I'm convinced that the best way for the church to be guarded against that is to be taught the truth. Now, it is appropriate at times to call out false teachers. It is appropriate at times to point out false teachings and heresy. However, the best way to guard against that is to know the truth. That way, when we know the truth and we are then exposed to false teachings, false teachers... Uh, poor theology, false theology, right? heresy, when we're exposed to that, having known the truth, then we're going to recognize that which is false and stand firm on that which is true. This is what the Apostle John does in what we, what we term as uh, 1 John, right? the, the epistle, which means letter, the letter of 1 John. And so this morning, we're going to begin a new study, a new series in the, the letter um, of 1 John. Now, I'm going to give you very little background information of 1 John, um, uh, just because I don't think it's necessary. Um, we do know that, or we do believe, we know that John is the, the apostle John is the author of this letter. It's not self-identified in the letter like we have in, in other New Testament letters, but the testimony of the early church is that the apostle John wrote this, wrote this letter, and he wrote it approximately... Uh, 85 to 95 BC. So we're looking at 50 to 60 years after the ascension of Christ. And concerning to whom he wrote the letter to, well, he wrote it to the church. 
not specifically one church, right? Uh, a New Testament church, but he wrote it to the church uh, at large. So he wrote it to the first century church, and, and he, wrote it, he wrote it to us. And again, in this letter, what he does, he seeks to strengthen the faith of believers against false teachings, right? False teachers, heresy, right? And he seeks to do this by teaching truth, specifically by going back to the basics, or back to, we'll say, certain basics. He doesn't call out specific individuals like the Apostle Paul does, though it, it was necessary when Paul does it. He doesn't attack specific false theologies um, by name. But indirectly, as we go through this, this uh, letter over the next months, years, however long it takes us to get through it, we're going to see, based on the truth that he's proclaiming, that in fact he was attacking false theology. He was attacking heresy, and he's doing it by proclaiming the truth. If you haven't um, got an outline this morning, there are some on the back table. It might be beneficial for you to have an outline to follow along. And this morning we're going to be looking at the first four verses of 1 John chapter 1, which really serve as the prologue of this letter. Right? And in this prologue, in this, in this entry, uh, if you will, what John is establishing is he's establishing the foundation for everything which he's about to teach, everything which he's about to proclaim in this letter. And that foundation is Christ, specifically the reality of Jesus Christ. So this morning as we consider these first four verses, we're going to be considering the reality of Jesus Christ. Read with me now or turn with me now to 1 John chapter 1 as I read the first four verses. John says, he begins by saying, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it, testified to it, proclaimed and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. He begins this, this letter by proclaiming the unchanging truth of Jesus Christ. He begins by saying, that which was from the beginning. What he's saying with this is, I'm not proclaiming to you a new gospel. What I'm going to teach, what I'm going to write to you, is not a new gospel. It's not about a new Christ, or a different gospel, or a different Christ. But I'm going to proclaim to you that which has been proclaimed from the beginning of gospel proclamation, from the beginning of gospel ministry. The gospel has not changed. Christ has not changed. See, what was happening in the church, which is what is happening in, what was happening in the first century church, happening in the 21st century church. That there are those who would seek to pervert the gospel, who would, who would pervert Christ, as in changing, into, changing him into someone or something that he's not. 
And John is saying, I am preaching to you the gospel that was preached from the very beginning. The unchanging Christ. The unchanging gospel. Let's look briefly at Galatians. Turn with me to Galatians. Galatians, the Apostle Paul, chapter 1, warns against those who would seek to pervert the gospel. Right? Who would seek to make Christ into their own image, their own understanding. And so in first, uh, uh, I'm sorry, in Galatians uh, chapter 1, we'll look at verses 6 through 8. Paul says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So that, that's what was going on in the church in the first century. This is what James, uh, James sorry, this is what John is, is uh, addressing and attacking, if you will, in this first letter. But even if we, this is verse 8 now, but even if we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So John is saying at the beginning of this letter, this gospel that I'm about to preach to you is the gospel that's been preached to you from the beginning. It's not a new one. It's not a different one. It is the one and only gospel. Now let's consider John for a minute. I mean, he was an apostle, right? And so as an apostle, John has apostolic authority. I mean, he was an eyewitness of Christ. He heard him. He saw him. He touched him. He has experiential knowledge of Jesus in a way that, that the first century church at the time of his writing didn't. He knows Christ in a way that, that we don't know him, right? Because he was, he was there. And as we continue in 1 John, we see, he says, that which was from the beginning, and he says it right here, which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Now, now John could have come out in this letter like the apostle Paul and said, John, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Here I am. I'm establishing my authority as an apostle. Right? And as an apostle with this apostolic authority, I'm going to preach to you the unchanging and unchangeable gospel and the unchanging and unchangeable Christ. But what he does in this case is he starts out and he says, not John with apostolic authority, though the readers know he had it. He says, with experiential authority. See, I was there. These false teachers are coming into the church, right? Disrupting families and households and individuals. John says, I saw him. I heard him. And in fact, I touched him. If you will, let's consider just briefly John's experience um, concerning his relationship with Christ. We know that he was called by Christ. Let's look at Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, verses um, 18, 22. While walking by the Sea of Galilee... Speaking of Jesus, says he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, 
and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. And the boat was Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called to them immediately. They left the boat and their father and what they followed him. So John was called specifically by Christ in his physical presence. John 13. John chapter 13 13 and verses um, 21 and through 25. This is... Um, occurs at the, at the table, if you will, when, when Jesus is speaking of the one who will betray him. We see starting in verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit, testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. And one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, this is John. John was the disciple whom Jesus loved. A title we give to John, right? The disciple whom Jesus loved. So, so John, right? was reclining at the table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, so John, right, leaning back against Jesus, I mean, he, he physically he touched him. Right? He saw him and he heard him when, when Christ called his name and said, leave your nets and come follow me, and he did immediately. And then as, as the disciple whom Jesus loved, as one in that inner circle, in Christ's presence, he physically, he touched him. Didn't just see him, hear him. He was there. He spoke with him. And he said, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, right? It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. Right? We know that John was also there when Jesus was, was crucified. So turn over to John chapter 19. 1925. Through 27 says this standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene and when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved John when Jesus saw his mother and John standing nearby he said to his mother woman behold your son then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. I mean, so, so think of this, right? It wasn't that he was, I mean, he was an apostle, right? Apostolic authority. But you know what? He was also a close personal friend of Christ. And he establishes this as his authority in this letter, 1 John. That which was from the beginning, right? which I have heard, because I was there and I heard him, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched, because I touched him, John says. Concerning what? So here he identifies Christ. The last part of verse 1, he says, concerning the word of life, the logos of life. Now, Now, though John doesn't, self-identify or identify himself in this letter, this 
the prologue of, of, of this letter, I think clearly identifies the author as John. And I think he identifies himself by this title that he gives Christ, that is the Logos, the word of life. And, and the one thing that, that, that I like about like the NASB translation, which the ESV omits, is capitalization of personal pronouns and other names for Christ. So, so in this case, right, in your Bible where you read, if you have an ESV and you see word of life, Word, W, should be capitalized because Jesus the Christ is Logos. He's the Word. But he's also life. And so in this case, this title, Word of Life, should be capital W, capital L. Jesus is the Logos, and Jesus is the life. Let's look at John chapter 1. We're going to look at chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 5, and then verses 14 through 18, where again, John refers to Christ as the, the Logos, the Word. He says, in the beginning was the, was the Word, the beginning of all time. In fact, the beginning before time began. He's speaking of eternity past. In eternity past, John says was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So in eternity past, or in eternity past, the Word was God, yet was with God. All things were made through Him, that is the Word, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. Right, because he is the word of life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now in verses 14 through 18, we see that John is specifically referring to Jesus as the word, the logos. And the word, verse 14, became flesh, became incarnate, the eternal God, the eternal Son, took on flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness, John the Baptist bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me, because he was eternal. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through who? Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. And he has made him known. The eternal word, Logos, right? incarnate, is Jesus who is the Christ, the Messiah. Back in 1 John, so he proclaims that this one, right, of whom has never changed, the gospel hasn't changed, Christ hasn't changed, the one whom I have authority to proclaim, right, calls him the word of life, the logos of life. We know that Jesus is the creator. John chapter 1 just proclaimed it. We know that Jesus is also the sustainer of life, right? We see that in first, uh, not first, but we see that in Colossians. Turn back to Colossians, if you will, real quick. Colossians chapter 1, 
verse 17. It says this about the Word. It says that He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. See, so John chapter 1 proclaims Him creator of all life. Colossians chapter 1 proclaims Him sustainer of life. But understand this. Spiritually, Jesus is, is life. True life. That is, eternal life is only found, can only be found in Christ. Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, verse 12 proclaims this about Jesus. I'll start reading. We'll look at verses 11 and 12. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. John proclaims Jesus the word of life. Because true life, eternal life, salvation is found in him and in him alone. Now the gospel is also the word of life, and I think quite possibly in this passage, John has a, a dual meaning, if you will, um, when he says word of life. Primarily he's speaking of Christ. Capital W, capital L. Jesus is the word. Jesus is life. He is the word of life. But we know this, that the gospel is also the word of life because the gospel or the proclamation of the gospel is necessary for the salvation of the lost. The proclamation of the gospel is necessary for the salvation of the lost. Now, the proclamation doesn't save anyone, okay? The knowledge of what the gospel is doesn't save anyone, but what Jesus Christ did on the cross and bearing the full weight of God's wrath against sinful men and women is what saves but we know that the proclamation of the gospel is the means that God uses, right, to what? To reveal to men our condition, which is totally depraved. To reveal to men the results of our condition, which is eternal death and hell, just judgment, righteous wrath. But it's also to reveal hope. And that hope is Christ. God, the eternal Son, who came to earth, who took on flesh and died the death that all men deserve. And through repentance and faith in Him, salvation is not merely possible, but it's guaranteed as a result of Christ's work. Let's look at Romans chapter 10. We see the importance of the gospel proclamation and the salvation of the lost. Romans chapter 10, verses 13 through 17. It says this, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a guarantee. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Again, on the basis of Christ's work. Not on the basis of the calling on His name, but on the basis of what Jesus did. Then it says in verse 14, How then will they call on Him 
in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without what? Someone preaching. Someone preaching what? The good news. The gospel. God's means of saving the lost. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from what? Hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The gospel. The gospel is the word of life. And the gospel is the news about the word of life. Messiah, Jesus Christ. Let's go back to 1 John. That which was from the beginning, from which we heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. Verse 2, he says, the life. Again, capital L, life. He's talking about Jesus. The life was made manifest. And again, he, he states his authority here. And we have seen it, and we testify to it. And proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. John proclaims the reality of God's Messiah, the reality of Jesus who is the Christ, the reality of the uh, eternal God, God the Son, have coming, have, having come sorry, in the flesh. This is what he's proclaiming here in chapter 2. Messiah, who is God, came in the flesh. I've heard him. I have seen him, and I have touched him. The word manifest means to be, be made known, to have appeared, specifically in this context, having appeared in the flesh. There is a heresy called docetism, if I pronounce that correctly, which says that Jesus only appeared to have a body. Right? And it is a heresy all the way back, leading all the way back to the time of Christ, or, or the first century church, if you will. And whether or not it was referred to that at the time, I don't know. But even till today, there are those who say, well, you know, he came, but he only appeared to be human. Because if he actually turned, you know, took on flesh, then he would be corrupt. And being corrupt, he would have no power to save and wouldn't actually be God. And so it was just a, an, an apparition, if you will, or, or an appearance of flesh. But no, John says he came in the flesh. In fact, later on in John, uh, the letter uh, of 1 John, um, I believe it's chapter 4, we'll look at this you know, way down the road, he says that, that if you deny, in fact, that Jesus came in the flesh, there is no true life in you. So, so what he says is proclaiming, believing that Jesus came and came in the flesh is actually essential to the gospel. See, here's the thing, right? John says, I, I, I proclaim to you, right, the Christ that was proclaimed from the beginning, the Jesus that was proclaimed from the beginning, and that Jesus, right, completely God, fully God, absolutely God, was also 100% flesh and bones. If you remove the flesh and bones from Jesus, what you have is you have a false Christ, a Christ who cannot save, a Jesus who cannot save. That's why it's absolutely necessary, absolutely imperative to believe that Jesus came in the flesh. So John proclaims it. 
Since he came in the flesh, you know what? Because I saw him. I was there. I touched him. I reclined my head on him at the table. Thomas proclaimed this as well, didn't he? We all know that story. Let's look at it real quick in John chapter 20. Thomas doubted, didn't he? Doubting Thomas. I mean, that's where we get that from. And what Thomas doubted was that Jesus had risen from the dead, didn't he? And he says that, I'm not going to believe that he rose from the dead. Uh, I just don't need to see him, but I need to touch him. And so we see in John chapter 20, verses uh, 24 through 29. It says, uh, now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? And blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Jesus came in the flesh. Completely man. We also see in verse 2 of 1 John 1, it says, The life was made manifest, flesh. We have seen it, we testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. John proclaims in this passage, Right? John proclaims the nature of Christ, Jesus. Fully man, completely God. We see it right here. We have a picture of the God-man in John. 1 John 1, 1, 2. He was made manifest. He was made flesh. And yet, what? We're proclaiming to you what? The eternal. Well, who is eternal? What does Isaiah say? Isaiah 57:15 says that God inhabits eternity. Only God is eternal. See, sometimes we, you know, we use that term eternal life, right? That for those who repent and believe, right, have eternal life. Well, yes and no. I mean, eternal would actually be all the way back and all the way forward, right? Really, our 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 spiritual life is eternal in the sense that it's from salvation forward, right? Only God is truly eternal, all time. No beginning and no end. We get to enjoy as believers the no end part, right? And even non-believers, right? I mean, their soul, there, there is no end, but it is an eternity, and it's an eternity in hell, and that is not eternal life, that is eternal death, but it's still very real, okay? John proclaims that this word of life was flesh and bones like you and I. Man, but yet God. Another thing we see in this verse 
is not only does he say that we proclaim to you the eternal life, that Jesus was, was eternal, right? Being eternal, he has to be God. He says this. He says that what he was with the Father, not, not made from the Father, not another form of the Father, but he actually says he was with the Father. So what does he, what does he proclaim here? He proclaims, in part, two people of the Trinity. We've got God the Father, and we've got God the Son in eternity past together, right? There is a heresy modalism, right, that says, says right, well, you've got God the Father, okay, and you've got God the Son, and you've got God the Holy Spirit, right? But they're not actually three distinct persons. What they essentially are is one person who is manifesting himself in three different ways, right? God, God is what? God is three persons, one God, three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Okay? I cannot completely understand it, but I can define it clearly. And in, this, and in this verse, what does John say? We've got God the Son in eternity past with God the Father in eternity past together. So we've got two of the three persons in the Trinity right here. So John proclaims that Jesus was flesh. John proclaims that Jesus was God and John proclaims that Jesus was God the Son, distinct yet present at the same time as God the Father. Now John, of course, proclaims the divinity of Jesus, right? Um, for those who have, have, have been going through the, our Christ in the Old Testament now complete study, we saw a numerous instances, right, where the Old Testament proclaimed the fact that the, the Messiah who is Jesus, right, was also divine, was also God. But Jesus proclaims this for himself as well, doesn't he? We'll look at two passages where he does this. Let's look at John chapter 10. Actually, we'll start in John chapter 8, and then we'll go to 10. We'll do it in order. So John chapter 8, we'll start in verse 48, and we'll go to 59. Jews answered him, or not right, in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon. All right, they're talking to Jesus. The him is Jesus. And Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And the Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. It says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. Now, I love that, just real quick. Abraham rejoiced and that he would see, he would see the Messiah. Abraham was saved in faith, or by faith, through grace, in the coming 
Messiah. That's what Jesus is proclaiming in this passage right here. He wasn't saved by works, saved by grace through faith, just like anyone else. Past, present, future. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, and when he, he saw it, or he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? So in that part right there, Jesus is proclaiming himself as the Messiah. And then we see verse 58. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And so they picked up stones to throw at him because Jesus hid himself, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So why did they try to stone him? They tried to stone him because in verse 58 at the very end, he says, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus proclaims himself to be God. And they were so mad because he proclaimed himself to be God that they wanted to kill him. Exodus 3, 14. Moses, right, is talking to the bush, right? He's talking to God in the bush. And Moses says, okay, I'll go to your people, but when I go to your people, who am I to tell them sent me? What's your name? What do I, what do I give them? And what does God say? God says, I am that I am. I am sent you. God says, tell them that I am, I am. I mean, that's my name, I am. So what does Jesus say in this passage? Jesus says that that was me talking to Moses. That was me. God, the eternal son, the pre-incarnate son, that was me in the bush talking to Moses. The Jews that Jesus was speaking to, they knew that that's what he was proclaiming and that's why they wanted to kill him. So Jesus proclaims his divinity. Again, we see it in chapter 10 of John. Verse 1030. I'm sorry, uh, uh, chapter 10, verse 30. Jesus says, what? I and the Father are one. Not one person, but one essence. Say one in purpose. They are two persons. We know there's three, but they are two persons of the three, in the one Godhead. I and the Father are one. He proclaims his divinity. I am divine, just as the Father is divine. That's what he says right here. Old Testament proclaims it. John proclaims it. Jesus proclaims it. In fact, all of Scripture proclaims the fact that the Messiah would be flesh, that the Messiah would be God. Again, doing what? Why is, John, why is John going over this? Because there's heresy. First century church, 50, 60 years after the ascension of Christ. And this false teaching is entering in the church that says, oh no, he wasn't flesh. Right? He wasn't flesh. He just appeared to be flesh. Or maybe, maybe he, wasn't, he wasn't, wasn't divine. I mean, the, the heresy that we have today is nothing new. It's nothing new. Now, let's continue in 1 John Chapter 3. If you have an outline, this is the second point of the sermon, which is the reality of fellowship with and through the word of life. The, the first point we just finished covering was the reality of the incarnate Messiah. So in verse 3 he says this, that which we have seen, again he's referring to Jesus, we've heard, what? we proclaim to you, Why? so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, 
Jesus Christ. John says, I'm preaching to you, Jesus. I'm preaching to you the gospel, right? I'm doing this so that you may have fellowship and or would be assured of fellowship. So what he's, what he's saying here, what he's doing here is this. It's twofold, right? I mean, he's writing this letter to the church, right? Those who are believers or, or professing to be believers. So for those in the church that are professing believers or are in fact believers, what he's doing, he's trying to assure them of their fellowship. And we'll define that in just a moment. But for those in the church who are non-believers, who are reading this letter, who are hearing his words in the first century and in today, what is he doing, right? His desire is that they would have fellowship, that they would be saved. So he's doing two things. He's, he's evangelizing and he's seeking to sanctify. That's what he's doing. This is why I'm doing it. I want you to have fellowship. What does he mean by fellowship? So that you would hang out socially? Not what he means by fellowship. Fellowship equals, in this passage, partakers in eternal life. I'm writing you these things, or I'm writing these things for those who aren't saved, that they might be saved, that they might be a fellow partaker in eternal life. I'm writing these things so that those of you who are saved would know and truly trust and truly believe that you are fellow partakers and eternal life. Because again, what was going on in the church? False teachers were stirring up lies that believers weren't secure in Christ. That in fact, either they weren't believers or they had lost their salvation. I've been getting letters. I don't know if Randy has gotten any, but I've been, been getting letters at the church. It's funny, we have a P.O. box address where all of our official correspondence comes from. But, but I've gotten two letters in the last couple weeks um, that come directly to 317 West Main. And it's from these ministries that I've, abs- I've never heard of. I got one on Wednesday, uh, Wednesday, I think it was. I don't know. No, it was Friday I got it. I didn't tell you. The first one I put on the desk so you could read it. I don't know if you saw it or not. The, the, the second one I read and I threw away. But I've been getting these, these letters, right, that are from ministries that are clearly works-based salvation ministries. And I start going through these letters and they're trying to use some scripture, but what they're doing is they're taking that scripture and they're twisting it saying, hey, I'm concerned for your church because your church, you know, if your church isn't doing this and the people in your church aren't doing that and they're not following this, then, then they're going to lose their salvation and they think they're going to heaven, but in fact, they're going, they're going to hell right? So you need, to, you need to warn your church that they've lost their salvation and that in fact they need to do these things so they can regain that salvation and make sure they go to heaven. And that's basically what these letters were doing, right? I mean, it's nothing new. John was dealing with this 2,000 years ago, almost 2,000 years ago, right? So we're dealing with that. We're dealing with that today. And so again, John says, right, I'm writing you so that you may too have fellowship, that if you're not a believer that you would be saved, Right? Be a partaker in this eternal life. And then if you are a believer, you would know that you are a fellow partaker in eternal life. Now, this, okay. Salvation produces, in this verse, we see that salvation produces fellowship. It's not something that occurs, but it's something that's possessed. Because again, what does he say? So that you may have fellowship. Right? I'm writing this to you so that you may um, uh, join in fellowship right? You may enjoy our fellowship. No, no, no. That you may have. It's something possessed, not something taken apart of, okay? So, so here's the thing. Again, it's not a social connection in this context, okay? Fellowship, right? Not a social connection, 
but a spiritual commonality, a shared spiritual condition and or experience. Now, I think Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11 does a great job of explaining this, this shared commonality of believers. Romans 6, again, 1 through 11. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, which all believers have, right? It says, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his, which all believers will. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. This is the shared condition, the shared experience, right, that the Apostle John is writing that he either wants the non-believers to have dead to sin, alive to Christ, right? Or that he's, he's reassuring the believers in the church that you do have. If you are truly saved, you are dead to sin, you are alive in Christ. You have fellowship with us. That is, you are a fellow partaker in eternal life. So this is, again, the fellowship that he's talking about. Not, not talking about what we're going to do after church today, which is fellowship, right? Different, though, what John is regarding as as fellowship. Now, in this passage in 1 John, he says that you may have fellowship with us. And then he says this, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Salvation produces also a spiritual commonality with God, with God the Father. With God the Son, though it's not mentioned here, God the Holy Spirit. Let's look at Second Peter. As you're turning there, okay, I want you to understand this, talking about a spiritual commonality, this fellowship with God. It's not that we become little gods like, like some teach, which is heresy. We don't become divine, okay? We don't have the nature of the divine, if you will, imparted in us that we are these little gods or we are whatever, okay? But let's look at Second Peter um, 1, 3 through 4, and I think he'll answer that for us. Again, Second Peter 1, 3 through 4. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, dead to sin, alive to Christ, 
through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And for this very reason, make every effort to support your faith and virtue and virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For these qualities are yours and are increasing. They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not that we share with this commonality with God, this fellowship, that, that we become little gods, okay? But one, we do inherit eternal life, right? As opposed to eternal death. Right? And that eternal life that we have, right? We have in common with God. We are a, a fellow partaker, if you will, with God in eternal life. Right? We also are a fellow partaker in that we have what? A new nature. One that's not bound to sin, but bound to him. So again, John says in these verses, he says, listen, if you are saved, you have fellowship with us. You are a partaker in eternal life. You have eternal life. And do you know that? And this is what he's telling the church. This is what he's telling us. That if you are saved, right? Once saved, always saved. That's what he's saying. You can't lose your salvation. If you've experienced God's grace and mercy in salvation, it is an eternal guarantee. So he's encouraging the church that you have it. If you are truly saved, you have it, and you cannot lose it. But again, the other thing he's doing is he's saying to those among the church who aren't believers, who maybe are false converts, I want you to have it. And this is why he's writing. Because he knows that there are false converts in the church. He knows that there are going to be unbelievers who know they're unbelievers in the church. And his desire is for them to be saved. That's our desire. That's, that's, that's Randy's desire. This is the church's desire, our church's desire. I know that from this church, is that when there are unbelievers amongst us, what do we want? We want God to save them for his glory, for their good. That's why John is writing. That's why I am preaching. That's why we gather together. Because why? God is glorified as he saves the sinners. And we want that. Third and final point this morning is found in verse 4. And it's this. It's the reality of joy in proclaiming the word of life. Now again, in verse 3, John says, I'm, I'm preaching to you that you might be saved and that you might know that you are saved. And in verse 4, he says this, and we are writing these things so that, why? Why am I writing all of this? So that our joy may be complete. You see, preaching Jesus, right? We've got the Gospel of John. We've got 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. We've got the book of Revelation, right? So we've got five books, letters, whatever, texts written by John, God through John. But nonetheless, what John is saying, he says, preaching Jesus and seeing the results of preaching Christ, that is fellowship, salvation, he says, brings joy to my life. 
So I'm, I'm writing these things to you today so that my joy may be complete. To sing the salvation of others bring joy to your life. As a believer, it should. Seeing the salvation of others should bring joy to your life if you are a believer. So, so I want you to first ask yourself this question. Do I take joy in seeing the salvation of the lost? Do I take joy in seeing the salvation of the lost? And here's the second question. Is this joy evident in your life through evangelism? Because if not, there's a disconnect. And I know that's something that we all struggle with, okay? I know I struggle with that. I know that Randy struggles with that. Something that, that we're constantly, I've been constantly confronted with. Because I take pure joy in seeing God save the lost. I want him to save the lost. I know that, that our children, right, are lost and need his saving grace and mercy. And I want to see them saved so bad. There's, there's no greater desire in my life for the children of this church than for God to save them. I take joy in that. And I want that. But do I want it so bad that I'm willing to evangelize them? Yes, them. They're our children. It's easy. What about our neighbors? I want my neighbors to be saved, but when's the last time I, I went over and I shared the gospel with them? I want my coworkers to be saved. I do, I do, I do. I pray for them constantly. But do I evangelize them like I should? Do you evangelize them like you should? So I think there's a disconnect. We want it, that our joy may be complete, but it's not going to be complete if we don't get out there and do what John did, and that's evangelize them. So the first thing we have to consider is, do we, do we take joy in seeing the salvation of the lost? And what are we doing about it, or what are we willing to do about it? And the second is this. Do you take joy in seeing the sanctification of others? Because again, this is what John is doing. He's seeking the salvation of the lost. He's seeking the sanctification of the church. What's he doing? He's evangelizing and discipling. John in this letter is being obedient to the Great Commission. That's what he's doing. He's being obedient to the Great Commission. Seeing the sanctification of others. Encouraging and assuring other believers in their faith and in their salvation. Do you take joy in that? See, see again, as believers, we should be taking joy in that as well. Join the salvation of the lost. Join the sanctification of the saints. And so then the other question we must ask ourselves, or I'm asking you, I'm asking myself, is are you actively seeking ways to encourage others in their faith and their growth in faith and in their sanctification? So I think it's all too easy to get caught up in this place where, oh, I want to see these people saved and I want to see the church grow. And then I'm just happy to go home and watch Discovery Channel and not do anything about it. So there's a disconnect between what we want or what we say we want and what we do or what we're willing to do. Let's go to Matthew and be reminded of what we are to do. Matthew 28. What John is doing. 19 to 20. Jesus said, go therefore, John, go therefore, Nate, go therefore, Randy, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. How do we make disciples? 
Got to evangelize, don't you? One who's not saved can't be a disciple. So he says, go therefore and evangelize and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, discipling them, encouraging them, seeking their sanctification. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. John says in, 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 in chapter 4, right, he's doing this so that his joy may be complete. Christ commands it, the Great Commission in Matthew. But John's not doing it solely out of duty, is he? I mean, it is. Right? Christ commands it. If you are his, you are to do these things because he commands it. But John reveals in chapter 4, sorry, verse 4, that it's his delight. It's his devotion because it brings much joy in his life to proclaim the glorious gospel of grace and to see God save and to see God sanctify as a result. Are you doing this? Have you been doing this? Do you want to do this? Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you. Um, I thank you for your word and for what your word reveals, which is you. Um, for what you've revealed to us this morning in First John, um, what we've learned about about your nature—I mean, one that you came, that 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 you came in the flesh, you came in the flesh to save, to save sinners from the holy, righteous, just wrath of the Father. You did for us what we could not do for ourselves. You bore God's wrath, and you satisfied it. See, we can bear God's wrath. And many will on that day of judgment bear God's righteous wrath and they won't satisfy it. And an eternity of suffering from a sinner will never and can never satisfy God's wrath. And so I thank you for revealing that to us this morning, Father. We've seen in your nature that you're fully man, that you're fully God, eternally existent alongside God the Father alongside God the Holy Spirit. Jesus, you've revealed to us that if, if we are yours, we have fellowship with one another. We have fellowship with you. That is, we are fellow partakers in eternal life. We have that. That is a guarantee, and I thank you, Lord, for that guarantee. Father, I want this church to know they have that guarantee. I want the lost among us to have that guarantee. Lord, I want to have the joy that John has. I want to, I want to evangelize. I want to disciple. I want to just do as you've commanded, do as he's, he's done. And I want to do it not out of duty, but out of delight, out of devotion. I want that for this church. And, and I see that happening, Lord, and, it, and it's happening because of your grace and your mercy in our lives. But I want, to, I want to see it grow all the more, Father, that we would become more and more obedient to you as we as we seek to evangelize the lost, as we seek to edify the saints, encourage believers. Lord, I want that to grow. God, I want this. I want all of this. I think we want all of this, Lord. We want it for your glory because we know that you are glorified as a result. But we also know the church is built up. 
which, which again, completely boggles my mind, how we get to gain from your glory. But it is so. And so we praise you, Jesus, and we thank you for it. Ask these things now, Lord Jesus, again, in your name, but for your sake, that you would receive the glory and the honor that only you deserve. Amen.